Hello and welcome to the new series of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. We're going to continue to dig into the stories of Ireland's past and uncover some of the key periods, sites and excavations by chatting with some of Ireland's leading archaeologists and specialists. And we have some really great episodes lined up for this summer, so if you're new here, you're very welcome. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss a thing. This podcast has been a little bit of a labour of love over the last number of years and we have a growing back catalogue now for you to enjoy if you haven't caught up with it yet. Amplify Archaeology Podcast is sponsored by your membership service, Tua. This is a subscription that gives you access to exclusive articles on Irish archaeology sites and places to visit, online courses and talks with real experts in Irish heritage. We've had everything from the history of witchcraft in Ireland to presentations of cutting-edge research that's going on on Ireland's ancient royal sites and more. We also have exclusive tours and get-togethers and a growing catalogue of itineraries that help you to explore places like the Burren or the Causeway Coast. It really gives you a history-filled road trip. If you enjoy our podcast, I do think you'll love it. And you can check it out at tua.ie, that's T-U-A-T-H-A dot I-E. But for now, let's get started with this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. And I'm delighted today to be joined by... Well, I think it's fair to say one of our most experienced archaeologists, Con Manning, who has worked with the National Monuments Service for the best part of 40 years. Is that right, Con? Yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> and has written some terrific publications and papers, an incredibly extensive career. Uh, but we're going to talk about one site in particular this morning. But before we get into it, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Con, in terms of your research interests uh, and some of your experiences over the last kind of number of years? Well, yes, uh, I was brought up in Kilkenny. <laughs> so with such wonderful sites around Kilkenny, like Jarpoint Abbey, Kells Priory, which my parents brought me to as a kid, you know, you had to get interested in archaeology. My father had a huge collection of books <laughs> and he, had, he was interested in archaeology. So it was natural enough that I would drift into archaeology. Um, started studying it in UCD and did, after first year then, we, I went into archaeology and early Irish history, which you could do that time as a complete subject. Okay. And uh, it was a very interesting mix and uh, I really enjoyed it and went on to do an MA then. And um, while I was uh, a student, I worked quite a lot with the late Tom Fanning, mm. uh, who was excavating Kells Priory again in Kilkenny. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Riesk. I also worked with George Ogan for a while. And uh, again, my interests grew into the medieval period very much. Mm. Uh, we didn't learn much about medieval archaeology in UCD those days. Things sort of stopped around the 12th century. Okay. But uh, working with Tom Fanning, we, you know, we got an interest in it and a knowledge, built up a knowledge as well of all of that. So mm -hmm. 
Um, when about 1978 with my MA, etc. behind me, um, I was lucky enough to get a job in the National Monument Service and uh, had plenty <laughs> scope for medieval archaeology and later sometimes after that. So that's the sort of general background. <laughs> yeah, well, you can definitely see the, the, the roots of that there. As you say, Kells Priory, if anyone hasn't been, it, it's one of our largest medieval. Like, it, it is stunning. It's funny, actually, because when you first look at it, it, it doesn't look like a monastic site, does it? It looks more like a big castle. The excavation, the, um, that was fabulous. And, and the publication that's come from it is it, so extensive. Mm. Uh, what was it like to kind of be a part of that sort of thing? Did you work with Tom on, on the dig itself? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked on it. It was... 1972 to 1975. Yeah. I wasn't there all the time because yeah. I was working at Nauth some of the time. But Gosh, it yeah. was an amazing excavation. Mm. Uh, locally, of course, you were saying there that it doesn't look like a monastic site at all. Mm -hmm. um, the Locally, it was called the Castles of Kells. Okay, okay. It, mm. Yeah, it's surrounded by these mm. massive walls and towers. It, oh, it's fabulous. But excavating Nauth and Kelsbury, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not a bad starting point. And in your years in National Monuments, what sort of roles in general did you, I know it's a long time to kind of talk about in terms of 40 years worth of experience, but what were the kind of the key roles that you were particularly drawn to or that you were working with? Was it like monument protection, advising people uh, like landowners, for example, or was it more like um, survey and, and add insights to the register? Or was it a bit of a mix of everything? Did it change quite a lot? It was a mix of everything to a large degree. Now, we were mm. based uh, in head office mm. and the whole country was our area. We didn't mm. have specific areas. So okay. you could have to go to any part of the country all of a sudden. And we were also very much the excavating end of the archaeological team mm. that was in National Monuments, which was probably a tiny team. I think we had about 11 people or something at, oh, wow. at some stages. And uh, so we were sent out to do quite a few excavations. And it was usually because uh, the architects who looked after the monuments needed something excavated in order to, uh, you know, conserve the monument properly. So yes. it was tied to that. And sometimes... We did rescue excavations as well. Okay, if a site was in direct danger of being lost through one yeah, reason. Yeah, especially on farmland. Yeah. Um, you know, where you couldn't expect the farmer to pay for it, or if something was found yes. and needed to be excavated, you know, so we yeah. did some of that. But I'd say there's some really memorable <laughs> moments from that. But like on the, I, I suppose, one of the sites in particular that we'll be talking about today is a clock outer castle. Although I've done a little bit of work around Cavan and they tend to say Uta, don't they, rather than... Clock Uter. Clock Uter. that's yeah. it. I could never get it quite right. <laughs> but could you tell us a little bit about the background of that? I mean, it, it is one of the most... I think it's one of the most beautifully set castles we have in the country. Could you tell us a little bit about its background, where it is exactly, and what the origins of the site were? Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely amazing looking site mm. uh, on this tiny island, which is, I think, really a cranog mm. uh, in, in this Loch Uchter, which is part of the urn system. So it's up above, uh, you have lower Loch Urn, you have upper Loch Urn in Fermanagh, mm. 
-hmm. And then the, the River Erne continues back through County Cavan. Mm -hmm. And then you have Loch Uther, which is a rather strange lake because it's, it's broken up a lot. So yes. you, you have bits and pieces here and there. But one of the bigger open areas of water is around where uh, Loch Uther Castle is. And it's uh, very strategically placed because just to the west of it uh, is a, a point called Ran Point, they call mm -hmm. it locally, or Rin Point. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole urn system goes through that narrow point and the castle really controls that. So that's part of the whole uh, positioning of the castle, I suppose, that it's uh, strategically placed. Yeah, it, it is a fabulous thing. And as you say, it's a really interesting lake because there's never a point where you can kind of feel like you look across the whole thing. It's almost like a series of tiny little lakes all kind of connected. It is a very unusual landscape around there and it's lovely for all that. But um, in terms of it, I, you know, in terms of its kind of historical context it's historical setting and you mentioned that there could have been a cranoke the origin like when are we talking about the castle kind of developing what were the circumstances around it being placed there yes well going back a bit there you're in brefney mm. and ancient irish brefney was really more or less contiguous with the counties of cavan and leitrim and uh, the O'Rourke's were the big family in Brefney in the say, 11th, 12th century. Mm -hmm. But the O'Reilly's were in East Brefney and were subservient to the O'Rourke's, but were trying to break away. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, there, you know, at the time when the Normans uh, come into Ireland, 1170, that sort of time, uh, <clears throat> O'Reilly actually joined up with the Normans for a while. He was at the okay. siege of Dublin <laughs> really? in 1170 okay. uh, because he was hoping to get their help to um, free him of O'Rourke overlordship. And uh, so there's, uh, you know, cooperation there for a while. Mm -hmm. But that breaks down then. De Lacy gets uh, the uh, lordship of Meath, which was mm -hmm. huge, Meath, West Meath, and he interpreted it to include Brefni as well because uh, O'Rourke was sort of overlord over the Welsh Shocklands in the, in the 12th century and uh, <clears throat> Tiernan O'Rourke. So uh, De Lacy had his eye on it and by 1190 he was moving up into County Cavan okay. and probably at loggerheads with the O'Reilly's at this stage. Okay. And... Uh, this would have been, of course, uh, the, the original De Lacy was killed in about 1186 or something. Mm -hmm. His son, Walter. But he had another son who was uh, a grandson of the last High King of Ireland because De Lacy sec in a, had a second marriage mm -hmm. to a daughter of Rory O'Connor of Connacht and, and the High King of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And they had a son called William Gorham De Lacy. Okay. And he's the man, I think, uh, who built Clockuchter Castle in about 1220 or so. And okay. he was married to a daughter of uh, Clewellyn the Great of Wales. So okay. he was quite an important character. Yeah. So there's interesting history at that stage. You have 
William Marshall the Younger mm-hmm. uh, going up uh, to um, North Meath, etc., to, <clears throat> uh, to, to suppress rebellion there. Uh, and uh, William Gorham uh, had left his, his mother, who was the daughter of the last High King of Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, his wife, and some other people in the castle. And it's called the Castle of Cranogh O'Reilly at that stage. Okay. So you have that connection to the Cranogh again. And uh, they capture the castle. And uh, and then O'Reilly turns on uh, William Gorham. And they get thrown out of Breffney. He tries to get in again about 1133. O'Reilly, this is, tries to get back in. No, oh, William Gorham. Oh, oh, William, William Gorham. Got and yeah. he's uh, defeated in battle and okay. he gets wounded and dies soon after. So it's very interesting. after that, it's pretty much the O'Reilly's and the O'Rourke's. Okay. And they're okay. competing somewhat over Clacoogter Castle, which was such a strong point. So you get yeah. it mentioned quite a bit in the annals, uh, going back and forward. But the O'Reilly's... Uh, end up uh, in charge. Yeah, th- those early kind of years, particularly with Hugh de Lacey and mm. and uh, and so on, the the there's such a kind of complex drama, isn't there? Uh, and you know, I suppose the reason would would it be right to say the reason he might have felt a claim to Breffney was because of some would say the murder, some would say the unfortunate events where Tiernan O'Rock was killed. At uh, the Hill of Ward, uh, so he might have claimed it by conquest, even and said that his land is. But it's interesting that they turned on the O'Reillys, and that then led to the mm. O'Rourke's reappearing mm. and reemerging. But mm. it is complex and really interesting mm. history for mm. sure. And in terms of its kind of because, like when you go to a place like this castle today, and it, and I think that's something that can sometimes be a little misleading about. A lot of our castles, they have this kind of romantic air almost. They look so beautiful mm-hmm. and clock out, a, you know, possibly the most of those. Um, but they were these real centres of administration and power, weren't they? And how big a kind of um, role do you feel that, because it, the island it's on is so small, I can't imagine there being a tremendously big garrison or a large number of people living on there. So how was the castle kind of... Uh, I'm not sure I'm formulating the question right, but how was the castle served by the people around it, by all the kind of the garrison it would need and all the ancillary buildings, blacksmiths, stabling and all of that kind of thing? How did it work in a practical sense? Did you get a sense of that? Yes. I mean, the the castle itself was this huge circular tower. Mm -hmm. It's 15 metres in in diameter. Yeah. And... uh, 60 feet high or something yeah yeah so maybe 20 20 meters high mm-hmm. um it's a very very impressive building but there was very little around it mm. so i think it's sort of a a bolt hole okay and you try to keep it and you use it used it as a prison even yeah. uh one of the yeah. old you know when there were uh, dynastic rows between within the o'reilly's some of them were held as prisoner within the tower, and that's its main use and a strong point that would mm. be difficult to take. But mm. it must have had a support 
um, structures, etc., on the mainland close yeah. by to operate as a castle. And, and um, that's what I was um, intrigued by because, uh, you know, I'd say I've been around that area a little bit, but now I haven't been looking specifically for this stuff. Um, do you know of any kind of contenders for, for where that well, lo- might have been located? In the 17th century, we know mm. exactly where it was because okay. it was in Inish Connell townland okay. on the south shore of that mm. part of the lake okay. and on the first edition of the Ordnance Survey map there were some ruins there which were called castle offices in ruins. Ah, okay, okay. So and that's, yeah. in fact, when we get on later to the 17th century, mm-hmm. uh, the Cullum family who had been granted Clacoctor and a good few townlands around there, uh, they had a fine house built there so that's where they lived Mm -hmm. and the castle was just sitting out there which could be used as as a boat or whatever yeah yeah i see it's role change well i mean maybe we'll talk about the 17th century because i suppose a lot of if people have heard some of the stories of the castle it might be in relation to its as you mentioned earlier its role as a prison and was it owen row o'neill uh, was kept in there and, and didn't he die in there? Uh, no, he wasn't. He wasn't kept there. It oh, was, it's not. Oh. The O'Reillys had it at the time, okay. and it's recorded that he was moving south. This is when Cromwell had already mm. landed, but he was a very ill man, and uh, okay. whatever illness he had, he had to be carried uh, on a on a sort of a bier or whatever. Yeah, and uh, he was brought to Clackoughter, okay. and. You know, it's always said that he died in the castle, but I think he, the Column House would have been the obvious place yeah. uh, to have him in comfort, and he died there. Okay. So very it's very interesting, but I think it's definitely the Column House rather than out in the castle, because there wouldn't have been, there wasn't any immediate danger, so they would yeah. have used this house, no. undoubtedly. But that's very interesting, isn't it? Because one of the folklore sort of stories about it was that he was, was he murdered by a priest in there or is poisoned or something like that? Was no, there, there, was a, there was a... Or was uh, that somebody else? It was someone, I think he'd met Coote or someone and there was something that he got oh. a present of boots or something and uh, that was supposed to be poison in them or something. But yeah. We just don't know really no. for certain. That's <laughs> no, very interesting. Mm. Um, and, and looking at the kind of, uh, you know, that kind of Cromwellian phase, is it first to say that the castle was one of the last strongholds Oh, it was, but just to go back a bit further yeah. there, yeah. Uh, a very interesting reference about 1600, uh, 1601, mm-hmm. and I found this and I was really amazed. Uh, in the state papers, it said that the uh, person in charge of Clacoctor Castle and of six uh, soldiers was a woman oh. called Catherine Butler. Okay. And I was sort of wondering about this. How, mm. you know, how was this woman in charge of soldiers? But she was the uh, daughter-in-law of Sir John O'Reilly, okay. who was one of the important O'Reillys, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, in the late 15th, in late 16th century. Um, <clears throat> he was... He had to get involved in the O'Neill Rebellion and because the, the, the government couldn't support him. He was a government man, really. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why Cavan was uh, confiscated. The whole county 
uh, under the plantation of Ulster and regranted etc to servitors and undertakers etc but uh, so this Catherine Butler her husband who was uh, Mulmurray O'Reilly Morgan O'Reilly uh, he died fighting on the British side uh, in the the Battle of the Yellow Ford. Okay. So she was uh, uh, a widow uh-huh. at this stage, and she had one son, Mulmurray Og or Mulmurray Og, and he died about the age of seventeen eventually. So that okay. uh, branch of the family died out. Um, apart from another son of Sir John, Hugh O'Reilly. And then we hear about this Philip McHugh O'Reilly later, okay. who was the last, who was the man in charge of Clagunther Castle at the Cromwellian siege in 1653. So you're getting all this complicated yeah. uh, family history again. But uh, I was amazed by that. But Catherine Butler mm-hmm. was from Kilcash in County Tipperary. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if there was a, a Kilcash connection. Cause of course, yeah, the, the, uh, as the far Butler. as I can make out, she was a sister of Walter of the Rosaries. Okay. And okay. Uh, so she married um, uh, this Mulmurray Mul- Mul- no, uh, O'Reilly, the son of Sir John O'Reilly. Okay. And... There's more to, afterwards. She married one of the O'Neills afterwards. So and oh, she okay. was, she only died in sixteen forty, just before the rebellion. Just before, yeah. yeah. It's incredible these kind of interconnection, family interconnections in this period in yeah. Irish history. Yeah. It's sometimes I feel a little bit safer in prehistory. <laughs> it's such a web of different yeah. kind of relationships, yeah. and sometimes they're they're on the same side, and sometimes they're against each other. And it's very, uh, it's very interesting to kind of map that kind of family story onto monuments mm-hmm. like the castle there yeah. and how the castle kind of develops and, and changes in, in relation to that but so Cromwell by the the 1650s by you say 1653 was was the seat he was pretty much had control of pretty much the country by that stage did he he'd, he'd been you know his forces have been very successful yeah um, what led them to decide that a castle on a lake in Cavan was worth the fight, to, to, for want of a better word? What led to the, the siege? Yeah, just, just go back a little bit. The plantation of Ulster, mm-hmm. the castle was really ruined at that stage, okay. soon after 1600. I mean, they might have had some temporary bit of roof in part of it or something. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, a decision was made um, sometime in after 1610, maybe between 1610 and 1620, to re-roof it, re-floor it, etc. Okay. Uh, and to use it as a prison for priests, for okay. Catholic priests at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. This never actually happened, but the, uh, I mean, it was never used as a prison, but it was uh, rebuilt. And... Uh, a cross wall was put within with a fireplace right on a ground level and so this must have gone right up through the tower to a chimney in the centre at the top. New floors were put in. Well, the, the <clears throat> you had the, the first floor was, could have been still the old medieval one mm-hmm. or, or they reused certainly that level yeah. and they put in a number of floors above that. 
okay. uh, completely freshly and open new windows, etc., with bars on them in this prison. Wow. So okay. it's sort of the Cullums got control of it, the Cullum family, mm-hmm. uh, and they never really used it in any way. They built their fine house on the shore. Uh-huh and uh, it was just sitting there he had the key of it and in 1641 uh, Miles O'Reilly who was the sheriff of the county came in and uh, under pretense of friendship or whatever and they didn't suspect anything this was right in the first couple of days of the uh, rebellion and uh, he turned on him on Colum <laughs> And uh, lodged him in as a prisoner <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? in the castle. And so they had control of the castle then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the O'Reilly's locally there right until 1653. So a whole 12 years. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and the, the, the history of this period is amazing. The detail is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the battle for taking over the county of Cavan was pretty successful. The The rebels uh, did very well, but two castles near Kilishandra who, that were uh, owned by Scottish um, undertakers. Mm-hmm. I think there was a Hamilton and a Craig. Mm-hmm. And they were holding out. And mm-hmm. the O'Reilly's and the O'Rourke's were attacking them. And at one stage... Some of the O'Rourke's, I think, were uh, captured by the people in the ca- in those castles, okay. and uh, to deal with that, then the O'Reillys decided to uh, put the Protestant bishop uh, of Kilmore, uh, William Bidell, a famous character in mm-hmm. his own right, mm-hmm. whom they had left uh, in peace up to that point. Mm-hmm. They decided to put him into jail in Clacoutra Castle yeah. with his yeah. two sons his son-in-law and so Arthur or Arthur Cullum was already there and they put another man in as well so there was about six wow. uh, in, in jail there and of those every single one of them apart from Bidel himself who died fairly soon after uh, wrote an account of it yeah because there was a couple of lives of <clears throat> uh, William Bedell, written by his son-in-law and his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were um, 1641 depositions made by some of the others. So we have extraordinary detail. It sort of comes down even to uh, them all, what they ate, how they cooked for themselves, what their... Uh, <clears throat> The man who was in charge, the constable of the castle, one of the O'Reilly's, how he mm-hmm. treated them pretty well. Mm-hmm. But it was the middle of winter and yeah. it was freezing. Yeah. And at one stage, a man came back from the siege of Drogheda. Mm-hmm. And they were, the O'Reilly's were sitting around the fire, which the fireplace is still there on the, the ground floor of the castle. And the prisoners were just in the floor above. And he was telling his uh, companions about how they had a terrible job at this siege and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, uh, probably one, one of the Bedells, uh, put his ear 
to a crack in the floor and understood Irish. They were talking Irish, of course. Okay. And uh, he was able to relate to the others what this whole story was, that the siege of Drogheda wasn't going well <laughs> for the Irish. And uh, yeah. so, you know, you have that sort of detail, which is just extraordinary. It's incredible, isn't it? Was Bedell the first person to write the gospel in Irish? Yeah, Bedell uh, organised and had learned that he was an Englishman, but he, mm. he was provost of Trinity, Trinity for a while. Yeah. And he got uh, the position then as, as Bishop of Kilmore. Mm -hmm. um, he would have had Irish, but he had two Irish scholars working for him uh, to translate the Old Testament into Irish. Yes. Which yeah. he succeeded in doing. And mm -hmm. the original uh, manuscript of that is in Marsh's Library. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't published at that time. It wasn't until the 1680s. That it was first published, and it was in use right up. It was the only translation uh, into Irish of the Old Testament until about 20 or 30 years ago. That's incredible. And it was used in Scotland, and it was used in Ireland. It was printed loads of times. Mm. The <clears throat> uh, New Testament had been translated some years before that, earlier in the 17th century, I think. Yeah, he's a very interesting character. He kind of deserves his own show, actually. But, like, so, uh, moving on, I suppose, like, we have the, the siege itself. And how did that come about? Were the prisoners kind of taken out and that was held? Uh, by this stage, I suppose, it had gone very badly for the the likes of the O'Reilly's and, and, and so on, I imagine. So, what was their approach? Was it... Uh, when they were dealing with when Cromwell came over and he had, you know, there was the siege of Drada and he said, uh, uh, you know, he had had such success. No, that's it. The siege of Drada I was talking about was the siege oh, by the, the Irish. Oh, was the Confederation. Yeah, Cromwell, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cromwell yeah. came over in, in 1649. Okay. And he was involved in Drogheda, Wexford, yes. etc. And he stayed over winter until 1650. Uh -huh. Then he went back to England. Yes. So he never came up this area. He wasn't in that part. Even though okay. in local folklore, you know, there was a road where uh, they approached Clapruther Castle and it's called mm. Cromwell's Road. Yeah. And Cromwell almost in... Uh, in the folk memory was there himself, but he wasn't. He yes, was so, the Cromwellian okay. army. Yes. And... We don't have a huge amount of information about the siege historically. Okay. okay. We uh, there is a reference at some stage, sixteen fifty two three, if sixteen fifty three, early in the spring, that a Colonel Barrow was besieging the castle. Okay. And that he was using artillery. And okay. so, that's about it. And then the next thing we have is the uh, terms of the uh, capitulation. Mm -hmm. And that was signed by uh, Colonel Theophilus Jones on the, uh, the government side and by uh, Philip McHugh O'Reilly on the yeah, other side, yeah, as so. I mentioned there yeah, uh, yeah. a little while ago. And they got fairly good terms, really. Um, mm -hmm. And he was, uh, Philip McHugh was negotiating on 
behalf of the remains of the Ulster Army also. Okay. Um, who were probably hiding out in other places. But this yeah. was their last strong point yeah. in the entire country. You could say it was the last siege of the entire civil war, the English civil war, which continued, of course, in Ireland. So yes. it's very significant in that way. Absolutely. Probably even the Cromwellians at that stage were tired of war uh, this castle was going to be bloody difficult to take because being yeah. out on the water and yeah. in such a, a strange lake, there were little ways the, uh, the people, you couldn't surround the lake no. completely. No, no. Um, in fact, if you're there today, you have to sometimes drive 20 miles to get That's <laughs> to the, the other side of the lake, you know. There's um, not a straight line in the whole region, <laughs> is there? It is incredibly So it was difficult. Yeah. They were bombarding it. I could. They, we even found uh, one part of the wall where you could see where cannonballs had hit directly into it. Okay. Um, people were being killed, obviously, probably on both sides. Mm. An underwater uh, bit of research that was done showed that there was an attempt made at one stage to sort of uh, storm the castle from boats, but it, it mustn't have been successful. Yeah. So it, it was nearly, a, you know, it was going nowhere really. And yet at the same time, the Irish knew this was it. it, it there wasn't much you could do. So yeah. they got good terms. Philip McHugh was allowed uh, to bring a thousand men uh, to the continent, to Spain, um, and that's what he did. Yeah. So, you know, he, uh, of course, he lost his lands. He had fine lands in uh, County Cavan, which he got under the, uh, the plantation of Ulster. But that was all lost. Um, yeah, yeah. He ended up in the Spanish Netherlands. And an interesting thing about him is that uh, he uh, was given, or he, he uh, had a, a book by Colgan, John Colgan, the famous Franciscan historian, uh, dedicated to him. It's a tiny little book. I was only able to come across one copy of it uh, anywhere handy in Ireland, and that was in the uh, Russell Library in Maynooth. Okay. And it's a small book on John Scotus, John Scotus Oregon, um, and it's dedicated to Philip McHugh. Maybe he gave money towards it or whatever yeah. in the 1650s when he was subsequently in the Netherlands. Yeah, it's so. interesting. Isn't it? it's, <laughs> it's such an, it, like the, that whole kind of 17th century, mm. it's such an interesting story, mm. you know, and, and that, you rightly say it, especially the Cromwellian aspect of it is an extension of the English Civil War, which mm. had been so brutal and, and then that brutality carried on over mm. here and accelerated in some ways. Everyone's a little smug down in Clonmel because that was one of the few places that kind of <laughs> ended up kind of hitting back a little, but still it, it, it's an interesting tale. But I suppose looking, you know, that that's a really good overview and thank you, Tom, for the historical mm -hmm. context of the site. Now, look Before you finish there, just Arthur Cullum, uh -huh. when he got away, uh, the people who were in jail, etc., they were allowed to go back to Dublin, go to Dublin. Okay. At okay. one stage by some agreement. Mm -hmm. And he joined the Cromwellian army and he was killed at the siege of Clonmel. 
Was he? Oh, now that is very interesting indeed. That, and he wrote yeah. his, he wrote his um, uh, his will mm-hmm. at that stage, and that survives the terms of it. All that's, in the book. No, that's the thing. It's a, it's a, it's such an interesting tale, and actually, the siege of Clonmel is something I'd love to look at archaeologically and and mm-hmm. see. You know, mm-hmm. pull that thread a little. It's a very interesting story. Uh, looking at the the archaeological context now what what was the impetus uh of the excavations that was carried out there uh, when were we talking roughly in terms of when they went ahead and, and and why and could you give us a bit of a sense of what you were expecting from the dig in a, in a sense uh, can we have a look at that yeah now the 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 background to it uh is that uh the castle was sitting out there in the lake, very overgrown, mm. say in the 1970s, 80s, um, and it didn't belong to anyone, uh, probably the farm estate originally, but the land around had been divided and, uh, you know, mm. sold mm-hmm. off and, and under the land acts, etc. And it was sitting out there, it's not in any townland, funny enough. Oh, <laughs> the okay. townland stop at the edge of the lake. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so... There was an interest in the office in taking it into state care. Mm-hmm. And that was a complicated issue because when something isn't in someone's ownership, you can't go to them. So mm-hmm. just to say, uh, could, could you give us this or can we buy it or whatever? Mm-hmm. And so you had to go through a certain process. You had to uh, put a preservation order on it first. Mm-hmm. And then you had to go to guardianship by order okay and so this process was gone through and then uh, the a certain amount of work and started clearing started a little bit more digging was done than i would have liked without archaeological mm-hmm. uh, supervision uh, but we were digging in dublin castle at the time so we were very tied up yeah. and uh, eventually just in uh, 1987, I think, after, after I'd finished in Dublin Castle, got a chance to go in and excavate. So um, there was a lot of rubble in the centre of the castle. Of course, to put you in the picture first, it's a big circular tower mm-hmm. with walls two and a half metres yeah. thick, I think. Very but one whole third of it is gone. Yeah. So what I think happened is that once the Cromwellians... Uh, got their hands on it they put a big explosion uh, they put a big charge mm-hmm. uh, into the wall and blew out that whole one third of the castle and big chunks of it are lying there yeah. and it must have been done at that stage there's no reference historical reference to that no, happening but that's no. doesn't seem to be any doubt about it and that's fairly standard practice for them wasn't it they make places yeah. essentially useless as yeah. as a defensive yeah. thing so am i right in saying then that the impetus for the excavation was as part of the bigger conservation of the monument it wasn't yeah. so much a research dig to yeah. find out oh yeah. yeah it was very much excavation prior to conservation yes yeah. Yeah, so they could put the scaffolding up and they knew... Yeah, the exactly. So you had the, the bases of the walls, you had the floor level, mm-hmm. uh, etc., all of that. So mm-hmm. we didn't really know what we were going to find. We, we do know that there had been poking done into it over mm-hmm. the years. Uh, okay. Lord Farnham, I think, 
uh, went digging into it uh, at certain times in the 19th century and, and I think he got a bit of a swivel gun which uh, should be in the National Museum but we couldn't find it anyhow okay. and uh, I, musket uh, as well, part of a musket etc <laughs> so um, you know it was a bit disturbed but not uh, completely No. so we didn't know what we were going to find really and some of the history we, we you know only some of it only came out afterwards really you know with, with more research on it and uh, so it, it, it was amazing. It was an unknown. We were <laughs> no, and, and sometimes they can kind of be a little daunting in a way because they can end up much bigger than you know. And how big an area did you actually excavate in terms of? Was it the entire sort of inner floor area of the castle, yeah. or did you go outside of that on the island as well? Or we went it? outside, especially on that side where the the wall was missing because yes. there was a lot of rubble there. Mm. Okay. And the inside, we took it right down to uh, floor level. Okay. And we went down below that, but we didn't find anything earlier, just piled up stones. Okay. It's, uh, the Cranog mm -hmm. was really made of, of stone, as well as we can see, just piled up stones. And there is uh, bedrock there, mm -hmm. and you can see some of the bedrock when the, the levels of water in the lake are low. Okay. Um, but we didn't find any evidence for the earlier Cranog. I think it, you know, there's no doubt about it. But uh, the, the, where we were digging, and yeah. we didn't go deep in other parts then yeah. so much. Do you think mm. then that there's a chance that rather than kind of a, a sort of a wooden Cranog that people might imagine, it might be something a little like say Dune Fort that you'd get in Lockerdoon in Donegal, like a stone. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there was, and that might have been recycled into the castle, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. Yeah, so the, it probably was a sort of a cashel type thing. Yeah. On uh, a lot of stones thrown down to take it above. Yeah. Uh, water level, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's very yeah. interesting. And in terms of the the key discoveries that you made, I imagine it was a difficult. Dig in a sense, moving all of that stone, you know, it's a lot of heavy work involved, yeah, yeah certainly. Yeah. And, and also the logistics because you're on an island, so yeah. getting stuff in and out and moving that stone and, and so on. Can you give us a feel for what the excavation, the practicalities of the excavation was like, yeah. and the experience of that, and, and what were some of the key discoveries that you made? The, the conservation team had already set up. Uh, a little uh, fenced-in area mm. at Rand Point as a depot. Mm. So you had a, a, a little key there for a boat and a couple of boats uh, with outboard motors. So that's how we came along in the morning and uh, we had to go out by boat. And La Hooker is, is strange in that there's a lot of rocks, especially when the water yeah. is low. And every now and again, if... Uh, if the um, uh, the outboard motor, the rudder, uh, yeah, hit um, hit a rock, it would break a little cotter pin inside, and mm. then we'd be rowing, you know, oh, and God. the clerical works would be given out to us, etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what time of the year were you doing this? Because like, oh, it was summer. Yeah, it was, no, it was summer. Yeah. Definitely summer. Yeah. I, I I went through a couple of years of doing some work, looking at kind of. Uh, you know, heritage artists and working with the community are, are in mm. Kilchander and around mm. there. But I always seem to be in that part of the country in January. 
and yeah it could be fairly cold as you can imagine there but there's always a thick misty fog it, it looks beautiful it looks very atmospheric but I was hoping you'd say it was a summer day because I couldn't imagine being out in the lake um, you know if the weather was sort of bad in, in 2011 yeah. it was you know it was very cold mm. weather that winter mm. and the lake froze over completely wow and the man living there, the farmer in, in, in Ishconnell, told me he was able to walk out to the castle. Jeepers. And I got there a few weeks later and there was still a lot of ice. Yeah, and yeah. it was moving because of the, the water. The and it was making a funny sound. It was, yeah. You think there was a, a quarry nearby and that there were loading stones down a chute or something. You know, it was very strange. Yeah, it is quite an eerie place. And, and it, you know, especially at kind of that time of year, because you get all the swans and the... Mm the migratory birds mm. that are in huge numbers. I imagine in the medieval period that yeah. would have been even more dramatic. And the water level rises by mm. easily six feet and more sometimes, you know, yeah, compared yeah. to winter to summer, you know. Yeah, it's a very interesting mm. place for sure. And in terms of um, when you're carrying out the digs, mm. what were some of the kind of the, the sort of key structural discoveries that you made? You, you mentioned you uncovered the floor what yeah. did that look like? Would it, was it a stone floor? It seemed or? to be sort of a mortar floor, just, okay. you know. And then they they had built that, uh, and it was that was sitting on rock, so it was quite mm. solid. So mm. that new spine wall they put in about 16, 10, 20, uh -huh. that was just sitting on the floor, but it had yeah. it had wooden framing under it. So that the wood was gone, so there were just the channels where these big beams had been. Okay. And... They must. It, I mean, it only survives to uh, two or three meters in height maximum now, mm -hmm. um, but it must have gone up in some form right up to a chimney uh, at the top. Oh, now yeah. we found um, we found the the door. Then at ground level was a seventeenth century door. The medieval door was of course floor level, as you get in a lot of castles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was above it and had been converted into a window when they did all that work in the early 17th century. Okay. Outside we found that there had been a, a square turret. Yeah. Uh, original, quite original, certainly 13th century, attached to the castle, but you could only see the toothing uh, of of uh, stone sticking out of the wall where it where it bonded into the castle, and we found some of the the base of that, but nothing else of it surviving. And that can originally would have contained the spiral stairs that brought you right up to the top, and you oh, can see at the yeah. top where you went in from yeah. that, and you were out on top. But yeah. the other strange thing about it is that thirteenth century openings etc. are only in the ground floor and the first floor. There's no evidence that, even though there was, a, you know, half the height of the castle above that, that there were any windows or anything. So it appears that okay. the roof of the medieval castle was countersunk way down within the tower. Interesting. And that is very common in uh, 12th, 13th century keeps, yeah. or whatever you want to call them. Yes, yes. And, uh, uh, yeah, no, square is. ones and other ones, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's very interesting. And um, you know, looking at kind of um, what you found there in terms of evidence of you know, um, say some of these kind of 
landmark events like the siege that we mentioned and so on did you find kind of direct evidence that either confirmed or contradicted some of these historical uh stories that we discussed earlier or um we got good evidence for as i said the bombardment you know there mm. were lots of broken bits of cannonball i mean there must have been hundredweights of wow. <laughs> of broken cannonballs that we got so they were bombarding it for a while but they were also bombarding it with uh, mortar bombs and okay. we found parts of uh, a couple of mortar bombs you know and they would have been very disastrous if they went through the roof of the castle i mean that could have uh, killed everyone inside but i mm. presume it didn't no, <laughs> quite no. uh, that didn't quite happen or that would have been the end of the siege fairly quickly and it would be very very hard to get that accuracy in those days you know to yeah for, for sure that, you know. and, and in terms of um, were the human remains there in terms of people that were died in the siege and, and, yeah, and so there on were, there were people killed in the siege um, mm. and we got there are, uh, four burials or uh, three were quite um, formally buried one probably even in a coffin okay. as there are uh, coffin nails Mm -hmm. And they were just in the ground in mm -hmm. front and must have been buried at night time, I'd say, okay. during the siege. Uh, one person was quite contorted. We, we thought the explosion might have covered them, but we're not too sure. Okay. Um, they probably were sort of uh, buried there in some form during the siege or whatever. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting aspect of it. Mm -hmm. But the other, all the finds we got were virtually early 17th century. Okay. Um, so you can imagine when the castle uh, was, was capitulated, um, there were probably quite a few things within it, you know, mm -hmm. broken muskets, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, spores, we got quite a few spores, one very uh, ornate one, mm -hmm. um, a lovely copper alloy one with uh, chase decoration in it, and other ones that were iron with silver inlay. Oh wow, okay. And then we got bits of um, cloth of gold and cloth of silver, which okay. so you're talking about uh, objects that were associated with quite high status people uh -huh. in one way or another and we got part of the papal seal we know that uh, the archbishop of um of armagh the catholic archbishop of armagh at the time mm -hmm. spent some time out there yeah i think there was a bit of a uh, a synod held out there at one stage in wow. the 16 or about 1650 or something like that yeah and here we got half a papal seal that's uh, incredible so it was loads of stuff. I mean, the finds yeah. were amazing. Uh, iron stuff that was there. We got a, a part of a cast iron uh, cooking pot as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, where was it made? It could have been made. There were, there were iron foundries in County Leitrim, etc. Mm -hmm. So it could have been made quite locally. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be pre-Cromwellian as well. We got pottery. Okay. We got glass. You know, we got... Uh, an amazing collection of finds there really and, and they're all typically all relating to that kind of 17th century oh, yeah. that period. and there was nothing though from the kind of the 
thirteenth mm. and, and, and mm. fourteenth. That's mm. interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, it really is. I mean, I suppose it, uh, again, it has to go back to the physical geography of that island. The the tower itself probably takes up what ninety percent of yeah. the island. Yeah. There's not yeah. an awful lot of Especially in those Space. days, because the, the island mm. was even smaller then, because oh, okay. drainage in the mid-19th century Has dropped the, the water level, uh -huh. yeah, generally. Okay, okay. Yeah. so yeah, that's mm. it. I mean, mm. yeah, it, it, it makes sense that I suppose there wasn't midden dumps and all of that mm. kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. very interesting. Um, and in terms of the specialist analysis that was looking at some of these, mm. these finds, what kind of uh, skills did you draw on when it came to to understanding the site and its material remains? Um, yeah, I suppose uh, Damien Shields, he looked mm. at all the um, <clears throat> uh, the military stuff, mm. you know, because I was no expert on that. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the cannonballs, he mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> weighed them the, mm. and the amount of them, etc. Was able to work out quite a lot and uh, drew up his plan of where he thought the uh, you know the siege took place from. Though yeah. I think they must have used the remains of the um, <clears throat> of the column house. Yeah, okay. it would have given them great. And that's the other thing we did. We we got a geophysical a geophysical survey done of that field, mm -hmm. and uh, indeed we found what's likely to be the footprint of the house. Oh, and, very uh, interesting. So that's... Um, yeah, that's yeah, so there's no physical... Like, you nothing, can't see anything no, at all. No, you can't see anything now, there yeah. now, you know, so that's... That's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. And in terms of um, the analysis of the human remains, yeah. uh, did that reveal, uh, apart from, you know, you imagine that... Like, did it reveal evidence of the violence, let's say, or did it reveal anything about the people? Were they particularly, you know, were they young men that were in... They, a, a they were young men, yeah. I think. Um, I'm trying to think of that. <laughs> I'm failing a bit, but uh, one we dug up had very little of the skull left. All right, okay. So it, it's possible uh, it was some horrific injury yes, um, yes, yes. A, it's a bit uncertain though yeah um, but uh, yeah we couldn't tell very much I think on, on those yeah. on those lines but uh, certainly they died during the siege you know and uh, you know I suppose all of that kind of evidence it, it's put together in this um, fantastic publication mm. you know which is real landmark I think and, and as you say it kind of brings together so many different forms of evidence the historical and the archaeological mm. in particular Work really well. Could you give us a, a little bit of an overview of that publication? Because these things never come about easily, I guess, and especially when there's so many different skill sets and everything else brought into it. Um, it is it about is it about ten years since it's been published? It was yeah. fairly recently. Yeah, I think it's two thousand and thirteen. I think. <laughs> Happy birthday to the year. publication. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, yeah, 2013, yeah. yeah. Well, a few years, a number of years before I retired, I was given time mm -hmm. uh, eventually to catch up on some old excavations and write them up. And mm. uh, I was given a, a room where I could work with no phone, uh, no other distraction of any sort, except all the finds, 
yeah. and all the records and all the plans etc yeah. so you had to get down to it and that was it and that was brilliant it was there on Earlsford Terrace it was a building that was due for <laughs> sale and demolition and there's I think Arthur Cox is there now okay. um, but that was my saviour really because that allowed me to get on with this because our office the office was always a busy place mm. and there was always lots of work going on and uh, uh, jobs coming in to be done and that was the problem because this yeah. was some years after you know quite a few years after maybe 20-25 years later yes but still all the material was there and it was possible to write it up so I did the history myself mm -hmm. and uh, because I'd been at it on and off over the years mm -hmm. and I was able to catch up on the whole account of the excavation, the analysis of the castle, etc. And I'd help from other people then for different aspects of it. That, uh, so yeah. um, it, was, it was great to get it all together and get it published eventually, you know, because it, it is a wonderful site and uh, an amazing yes. Uh, lot of material that came up there. No, it, it is fabulous, and as I say, it's a, it's a fabulous publication. I'll put a link to it actually on, on the webpage as well. It's still available. Um, for Wordwell Books, I think you can still. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. It yeah. Um, because of that gap, I know it's, it, it's so difficult, isn't it, to kind of. Uh, that's the thing with archaeology, because you have to wait a little while for the analysis to come back and this, that, and the other. There's always. You never really get to write up a site. Mm very close to when you excavated it it's very rare to get that do you feel that you know your ideas when you were excavating it and that you know when you mm. just freshly walked off the site and you had finished had your ideas changed much when you were looking back on it in retrospect you know when you come to write it up if you kind of you know because you had different experience and all mm. of that kind of thing by then or was it still largely consistent with your uh, original kind of initial impressions of the site? Uh, yes, some things remain the same very much mm -hmm. and others I suppose with the amount of time uh, you had built up other experiences you say mm -hmm. and I think it, it was a better report uh, for the fact that it was done at that time than earlier because you, you couldn't have drawn on some uh, expertise etc you know mm. earlier on so um, strangely I think it's probably a better uh, publication than if I had a chance to do it initially but that was our problem the office that we were sort of short of staff yeah Dublin Castle was a huge job and mm. again that's only getting written up now thanks <laughs> thanks be to God it's, it's getting done yes uh, it's getting there um but yeah, ideally, uh, excavation should be written up closer to the date, but it just wasn't possible in our case. And we were building mm -hmm. up a backlog. And then at one stage, we had to, about 1990, say, we can't excavate anymore. Yeah. But by then, there, you know, there was a whole uh, commercial archaeology um, and work could be uh, contracted out, etc. Whereas when we were... Back in the eighties, mm -hmm. that didn't exist really. Usually, so no, that's it. And yeah. uh, do you know, I often think about that with with archaeology. It's kind of a funny one in a way because, in some senses, a publication is quite a a final act. 
But because of the changing nature of archaeology with new techniques and new ideas and new methodologies mm. come along, new scientific analysis, mm. and you yourself gaining different experience and perspective, you might write a book. And then 10 years later, you might say, you know, I've, I've certainly done that as well. I put something yeah. out there. And then I think about it a few years later. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I agree with the me of the past, <laughs> you know, quite the same way. Um, and that's sometimes the trick. And I think that's the thing with archaeological publications, that there's sort of uh, a little time capsule, mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. to the way that you were thinking and the methods mm-hmm. that you had, mm-hmm. yeah. rather than this is definitely mm-hmm. the exact story of the site, you know, in a sense. I don't know if that... Yeah, it's um, logical, but <laughs> two things that were added that I couldn't mm-hmm. have added if I was publishing back in the 80s mm-hmm. is the underwater because there was no yeah. underwater unit at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the underwater unit who did the work were based in the department, you know, in national mm-hmm. monuments, and uh, also the geophysics that didn't exist, yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. us anyhow, back in the 1980s so and probably wasn't refined enough anyhow to that's it to work very well so you know they were yeah. two pluses from a- absolutely <laughs> it so late. And, and that technology it's increasing in its capacity and ability all the time and actually just on the underwater thing did they ever find anything like a causeway or anything or was the castle always accessed by boat it, I'm pretty sure it was always accessed by boat, okay. and it w- they would have been uh, log boats, of course. And part mm-hmm. of a log boat was found in the underwater work. Interesting. And in fact, the account of uh, Bishop Bedell being taken out to the island said he was brought out on a boat made of one piece of timber. That's really interesting. Yeah, so that even into the 17th century, that was still the mode of transport. Yeah, I, it's so like I, I think the the excavation and the publication shows this really nicely as well. It's just that combination of the history and the archaeology. I think mm-hmm. just telling a more complete story and and you know each support and the other. I think it's very interesting. Um, there's, there's another I suppose legacy of the site as well in the Cavan County Museum, mm-hmm. and which is a particularly good county museum as well. And and, and again, I recommend people go and see it. And you know personally, uh, I, you know one of the big things I, I always really love to see is that, okay, you can't always have the artifacts, let's say, mm. local to where they were found, but I'd love to see information locally. Uh, how did it come about, really, that um, there was an exhibition on the castle in, in the County Museum? Was it the County Museum approached yourselves, or did you go to the County Museum, or, or how did that kind of connection build up? I can't remember exactly now, no. but uh, there's a... W- there was a wonderful um, curator in the museum at mm. the time, Sabina Donahue, and she was a powerhouse mm. uh, at uh, bringing people together in different ways. So how exa- I can't remember how exactly it happened, mm. but I got involved in it just about the time the, the book was being published. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> they got designers in, and it's the whole top floor of the museum in Bally James Duff, Mm-hmm. County Cavan is devoted, or was certainly devoted until recently, uh, to Clapulter. And I drew up all the um, the texts for the different parts of it. And there are a number of the the better uh, artifacts from the excavation are on display there as well. Mm-hmm. And the whole story of Clapulter 
and uh, so it was uh, it was a wonderful thing to have and we actually launched the book there as well in 2013 that's brilliant at that uh, at that stage and uh, it was it was quite a fine occasion no absolutely and, it, and as i say it's fantastic to have that kind of information uh, pretty locally available it's a little bit of a drag between the two but it's pretty <laughs> um, but the other legacy i suppose is the monument itself it's still there it's it's beautiful it features a lot in i know uh, Fulcher islands island hidden heartlands mm. it, it's definitely a poster child for that and, and i've been lucky enough to to visit it a couple of times myself uh when it did uh, cabinet adventure center when i was working with the mm. county council there looking at things you know but it's not an easy site to get to by any means you have to either kayak or you have mm. to take a motorboat mm. um as i suppose that area as there's a little bit of interest now growing all the time from mm. tourism, uh, what would you like to see for the future of the monument itself? Would you like it to kind of remain as this? Uh, would you like it to be more accessible, I guess, uh, for people getting onto it? It is such a small and delicate site mm. in a way. Uh, or do you think it's one of those that's kind of best admired from afar in a sense? And, you know, because of its romantic setting, or how do you feel? It'd be nice if people could visit it. Mm. I, I mean, realistically, it would be something that would only be in the summer months or yeah, just yeah. the main tourist season, July, August or something like that. Yeah. But if someone could set up a little boat or whatever. But, of course, the problem with these things is insurance these days. It's a, a yeah. major problem. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have got out there with... Uh, the Royal Society of Antigruis we brought a, a busload of people out and the Kildare Archaeological Society too and we got out to the island each time um, <clears throat> a few years ago it was beginning to start <laughs> uh, ivy was beginning to grow mm. up it again mm. and uh, it might need to be uh, you know maintained a bit mm. better and then fishermen who ever come there light fires in the, yeah, the fireplace and things like that yeah. and some of the carved stone got cracked by this and you know there's unfortunate things happen yeah it would be good if if, if it could be more accessible but uh, but it can be admired from a distance as well it, it surely can i mean it is one of the most i think it's one of the most beautiful castles in the country I, I really do think it's a special place and i suppose moving on from that and then yourself now kind of looking back retrospectively and, and, and perhaps even looking forward from the national monument service itself in, in all of your uh, years of service there it's changed a lot and i suppose recently it's been fabulous to see initiatives like the community monuments fund mm. you know we get to work with a lot of groups in the adopt a monument scheme for example mm. and it's been transformative Mm. And one of the groups that's really benefited actually is, is uh, nearby to, to Clothuta and that's at Kilishandra, the Church of the Wrath, which oh, is yeah. now fully conserved mm. and mm. they're now just working on the boundary walls and that was a site that was in brave danger of collapse uh, and, uh, and it's now protected. Um, what would you like to see in terms of the role of the National Monument Service? How would you like to see that kind of change or develop or would you like to kind of see this recent investment kind of continued. Uh, is there anything kind of looking forward that comes to mind? Um, I think it's moving in the right direction mm -hmm. very much. And it's wonderful that uh, a whole uh, swathe of new staff 
mm. uh, have come in recently because in nearly all my years working there, we were always short of staff yeah. and we were always short of money to quite a, a degree, not, uh, not yeah. with a lot. And that seems to have improved greatly. Yes. The Community uh, Monument Fund is a wonderful one as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it gives a chance to people who are really interested in a particular monument in their own area mm-hmm. to get something done about it. Because over the years, we'd have people writing to us, say such a monument should be done up. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, the National Monument Service, uh, we were all together at one stage. It's divided now between OPW and ourselves, which uh, is unfortunate, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, they have limited resources with direct works teams. They can hardly get around to all the monuments that are in state care. So yeah. taking new ones in was wasn't a, you know on in a lot of cases. You know, so yeah, and it yeah. and it's difficult, isn't it? Because I suppose there is those years of underinvestment in a, mm. in a way if that's fair to say and, mm. and now we're facing issues like climate change and, and mm. sites facing kind of you know because they've not been uh, a number of sites needed that little mm. ongoing maintenance and so on there's a bit of a catch-up process mm. needed but that that's you know that's why the community monuments fund working alongside the localities mm. has been so valuable i think but uh no it it, it it's it's terrific to kind of see that investment and mm. I hope it continues and, and as you say the new staff coming in has, has been brilliant as well you know mm. it really has but I think for now Con that's been a really yeah. interesting discussion of one of my favourite sites I think it's um, you know as I say I swing around a lot between the periods I'm interested in but I think anyone who's seen the castle yeah. in the flesh couldn't help but to love it like it is mm. just stunning um, so I do advise you know people go and take a trip up to that part of the county cabin it's gorgeous there's a lot to see particularly in the summer and visit the museum and visit the museum for sure and pick up the publication too <laughs> well for now thank you so much Con. that was really interesting thank you thanks very much Neil. so that's it for this episode I hope you enjoyed it and I'd really like to thank Con for all his time and insights and what an incredible wealth of experience You can find links and more information in the show notes on our webpage. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as it really does help us to be found. It lets those platforms know that, well, we're worth listening to, I guess. So hopefully you agree with that. And if you can, don't forget to check out tour.ie, where you can delve even deeper into the stories of Ireland. But until next time, Thank you for listening and take care. Goodbye.